Well, good morning. Um, somehow, whenever we have our children's choir come up and sing, I'm the guy that gets to preach after them. I think this is a pattern that I'm starting to notice. But honestly, I don't mind. And one reason why I don't mind about following the kids is it doesn't matter how many, how hard our children's ministry team works with those kids to get them to know their song, get them to know what they need to do. Once they come up here, you never know what's going to happen. And that's really cool. All right? Uh, We are continuing our series, uh, going to different passages in the book of Isaiah, all of which teach us something about Jesus, all right? Especially since we are building up to uh, Christmas. Now, I just want to mention one more time again, and a lot of you have already heard this, but next Sunday, which is Christmas Eve, we are doing the service a little different. So I just want to mention this one more time, make sure everybody's on board, and that is we are having one combined service Christmas Eve only, 10 o'clock. It's a family service, so we're going to have our child workers uh, ministry team with children. They're going to be in here as well. We're all going to be one big happy family, 10 o'clock, worshiping the Lord. So I would encourage you, if you can possibly make it on that day, please come and join us. It's going to be a real blessing. All right, so we are going to be going to Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, in just a moment. And I'm calling the message for this morning, The Unexpected Servant King. All right, and I'll explain more about that in just a second. But before we get right into the scripture, um, again, I knew I was going to be up here following the children. So I'm thinking, okay, children ministry, uh, servant, how can this tie in together? And I got an idea. First grade, me. Favorite TV show for me in first grade, Batman. I had the Batman lunchbox. I had the Batman thermos. I had the Batman shirt. My mom would let me run around with a towel, like a cape, like Batman. I love Batman, all right? And I thought it was all for real, all right? That's just how you think about things when you're in first grade. But Batman would be nowhere without dutiful, faithful, dependable Alfred Pennyworth, his servant butler. Who else? By the way, I know there are other actors that have portrayed Batman. Michael Caine, Andy Serkis, Pikers, Ne'er-Do-Wells. The real Batman was Alan Napier, all six foot six of him, all right? Who else could drive the Batmobile in a pinch wearing goggles? Because Robin didn't have his driver's license yet. Who else could impersonate Batman, even climbing buildings with a bat rope? And who else could bring Batman his cold milk? (laughs) Only Alfred. But Alfred is a far cry from the ultimate servant, which is who we're going to learn about today, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in flesh, who came to save us from sin and bring us into a relationship with himself and with his father. Now, Jesus actually described himself as a servant. And he did actions specifically that brought up the idea that he was and considered himself to be a servant. Like, for example, the night before he was arrested, Before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made his disciples extremely uncomfortable because he insisted on going around and washing their dirty, grubby feet, literally the action of a servant slave. He did that to each and every one of them to teach them a lesson about being a servant because he was a servant. And before that, when two of his disciples, the two brothers, James and John, were both kind of angling 
to get the number one, number two places in the kingdom. And the other disciples got upset. Jesus called all the disciples together and he said this to them. Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the main idea, what we want to come away from is this. Jesus is the servant who came to save and restore. We will see that clearly in our passage in Isaiah 42. But there's another thing. He also shows us how to serve. All right? And he does that specifically by his example. All right? Now, let me give us a little bit of background about servants in the Old Testament. First of all, a general definition of a servant of God is simply this. Someone whom the Lord has chosen to accomplish a particular task, to fulfill a given purpose. Now that covers a lot of ground. But for example, Moses. Moses was called specifically the servant of God because he led the people in the wilderness and also it was through Moses that the Lord revealed the truth of what we know today as the Mosaic Covenant, including the Ten Commandments. He was specifically called God's servant. Joshua, Moses' successor, was also called a servant because he's the one that led the people of Israel into Canaan following the Lord's direction. David is also called a servant because although he's king of Israel, he has that position because God put him in that position to fulfill that purpose. And by the way, a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, who may have known the Lord, who may not, we don't know, but even Nebuchadnezzar was called at least twice God's servant because it was through him that the Lord disciplined the people of Judah because of their idolatry, because of their sin. Nebuchadnezzar was raised up for the purpose of being God's instrument to discipline his people. That made him a servant of God. Now, narrow the focus down, this idea of servant. What about just in the book of Isaiah? In Isaiah, the second half of the book, there are four passages of scripture. They are called the servant songs or poems. The one that is best known is Isaiah 53 the suffering servant. This is the first one, Isaiah 42. It actually goes all the way to Isaiah 42, verses one to nine. We're just gonna look at the first four verses though. But all four of the servant's songs are about Jesus and all of them emphasize, they're also about Israel sometimes too, but they're especially about Jesus. They all emphasize the Lord's accomplishments. What did he do? beginning with this one. Now, the outline we're gonna be working with, first of all, we're gonna see in verse one, four facts about Jesus the servant. Then, as we look at the rest of the passage, we will see the ministry of the servant Jesus. How did he do what he was called to do? All right, to be that servant. And then finally, what about us? How do we follow Jesus, our servant king? And by the way, when we get to that third thing, we're gonna see how all of this ties together, all right? Let's take a look, first of all, verse one, Isaiah 42, the four facts about Jesus, the servant. Read with me verse one, Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. All right, let's pause there. Isaiah 41, 
just before our verse, there's a passage of about eight, nine verses where the Lord is making it absolutely clear that he is the one true God that we all need to worship. And contrasting the fact that he is the one true God are the worthless idols. And by the way, just to make sure we need to understand, idolatry was not just a problem in Isaiah's day, it's a problem today. Because anything that we put in first place other than the Lord, whether that is our job, whether that is our family, whether that is our career, whether that is our favorite possession, a relationship, anything we put before God is an idol. And an idol is a form of, or it is, rebellion against the truth that God has already revealed about himself. So, Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 29, attacks, rebukes, confronts idolatry. And then, in contrast, we hit verse 1. Behold my servant. Forget the idols. Look at my servant, the one true representative of me. As one guy said, He, the servant, is God's alternative to our idols. He is not an abomination. An abomination is an idol. He is a delight to all who know him and also to God the Father. Now, four facts about the servant. I'm going to list these off fairly quickly, so here we go. First of all, looking again at verse 1, he is upheld. He is supported by God the Father. Literally, the Hebrew word there means he is grasped, he is held by God himself. So Jesus didn't need any other support. He had all the support he needed from his father. Which, by the way, was a good thing because, for example, on the night he was betrayed, even though all the disciples said, Lord, we're not going to go away. We're going to stay with you. No matter what, we're going to stay with you. When he was arrested, off they went. They ran. But Jesus said, even though all of you will run away from me, nevertheless, the Father will stay with me. And the Father did. There was only one time when God the Father had to turn away from Jesus. And that's when he bore our sins on the cross because God cannot look upon sin. And he turned away. The first and the only time in all eternity when the relationship between the son and the father was broken. And that's the reason why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time, the father was always there. Secondly, notice, looking again at our verse, he's chosen. Jesus was appointed to the role of servant. He was appointed and he was also prepared for this role. You see, there was two things that absolutely had to be true about Jesus in order for him to be our Lord and Savior. First of all, he had to be descended from the line of David. To be the king, to be the Messiah. That was required. Secondly, he had to be the son of God. And not just the son of God, he always was the son of God, but to have been demonstrated truly to be God's son by his resurrection from the dead, that he overcame even death. That's the reason why Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, he said this about Jesus. As to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David who through the spirit of holiness, that's the Holy Spirit, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He was chosen. He was prepared. Third, he's the Father's delight. In other words, when God the Father looks upon God the Son, 
He looks upon them with joy. Now, we have something that's really cool that's going to happen in our family in a few months. We're going to have our first grandchild, Lord willing. And I can tell you, when that kid shows up, whenever that happens, that kid, well, first of all, she's going to be spoiled something fierce. Her middle name, with four grandparents, if this is going to be the first grandchild on both sides, her middle name is going to be spoiled. But it's going to be a look of delight. Not just with Linda and myself, not just Anne and Mark, our uh, son-in-law's parents, but also the entire family, all right? But that's the same look of the father upon the son. As a matter of fact, the father so delights in the son that when Jesus was baptized, although John the Baptist didn't want to do it, he didn't feel worthy, but Jesus insisted that he do it. Here's what happened. Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice, this is the father, came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The fourth fact, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Notice it says in verse one, I have put my spirit upon him. The spirit arrived upon Jesus in a unique way when he was baptized. And as Jesus carried out his ministry, he carried out his ministry in the ongoing power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, this is after his baptism, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He goes there, he's tempted, but the Spirit sent him into the wilderness to experience those temptations. Afterwards, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went up, skipping down to verses 16 to 19, to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He reads a little more. He closes the scroll. All the eyes of everybody in the synagogue are looking on him, and he says to them, today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning that, He's arrived. The servant has arrived. And the servant has arrived, and the servant's ministry is carried out by the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, the reason why I make a big deal of this is this. A lot of times we make the mistake of thinking, well, Jesus did all of those miracles. Of course, he's God, so he did it by his power. No, he didn't do it by his power. The reason why we know he didn't do his miracles, including his resurrection by his power, is because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that Jesus, as the servant, voluntarily set aside the exercise of his divine attributes, his divine power. He didn't become less than God. He never became less than God. But he set aside, he became a servant, and so he did his ministry through the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that lives within each and every child of God, the Holy Spirit who resides in us, the third member of the Trinity. Now, why is all this so important? Why are these facts important? Here's why. In Jesus, we have all we will ever need to be saved and have an eternal relationship with God. Paul wrote to the Colossians as they were dealing with people trying to add on things to 
what the scriptures said about Jesus, he told the Colossian Christians this at one point, and we need to hear this too. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition. Those words could be written the same today. Because guys, there's a lot of junk out there that people are saying is true about Jesus, is true about Christianity, that is absolutely worthless. Because it's in accordance to human tradition. It's man-made philosophies. So Paul again says, see to it there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance to the elementary principles of the world. What's that? It's basically the world's ideas of knowledge and wisdom. Okay? So often the exact opposite of what God says. Rather than in accordance with Christ, For in him is all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, everything that's true about Jesus is true about his father, is true about the Holy Spirit. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the exact representation of the father. Let me give you an illustration of this, all right? Anybody who knows Pastor Mark knows that he is an outstanding barbecuer. He's really good at this, all right? So imagine Mark is working on barbecuing a brisket. And briskets, I know, they take a long time. Those of you who barbecue know what I'm talking about. 12, 14, 15, 16 hours to do a decent brisket. So Mark has been working on this And it's smelling so good, all right, as he's doing this barbecue. And then I show up. And I smell that brisket, and it's smelling good. It's got everything it needs. It's going to be awesome. And then I show up, and I say, hey, Mark, let me help you. And he looks at me like, uh, okay. Yeah, I brought all this. I open up a box. I have all these spices. Let's add this to the brisket. And before he can stop me, I open up, first sin, I open up the barbecue. You don't do that with brisket. I open up the barbecue and I reach in. I grab a container of cloves, ground cloves. Let's add this. I grab saffron. Let's add this. I grab pumpkin pie seasoning. Let's add this. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. All right. Uh, If I did this, our church would be needing a new teaching pastor because you guys wouldn't see me anymore. (laughs) Why? Because I took something that was absolutely perfect and added to it. What we have in Jesus as the servant is perfection. All right? We have information about him All we need to do is concentrate on getting to know Jesus better. And by the way, if we're going to get to know Jesus better, we better understand how his ministry works. Not just when he was in earthly ministry, but also how he does things now. So guys, read with me now. Let's go back. We're going to finish verse 1 of Isaiah 42, and we're going to read all the way to verse 4. What we're looking at now is the ministry of the servant Jesus. So read with me. Here we go. He will bring forth justice. Now, you might want to underline that word because it's going to show up repeatedly, but let's keep going. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has accomplished justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Or another way to translate that, his instructions or teachings. All right. The key word, justice. Did you catch? It was mentioned three times 
in this short passage of scripture. God's justice is his righteousness, it is his judgment. Abraham, as he was talking before the Lord himself, when the Lord came to see him, and Abraham knew the Lord was heading to Sodom and Gomorrah to judge those people because of their extreme wickedness, but Abraham hoped there were still righteous people. Perhaps even his nephew Lot was still righteous, living in the midst of Sodom. So Abraham began to talk to the Lord, knowing the Lord is a God of judgment, of justice. And he said at one point, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And that is absolutely true. We want justice, don't we? If you following the newspaper excuse me we don't read newspapers much anymore let's try that again if you're following the news app on your phone watching cable news I don't care what striped variety you happen to watch but it's all the same we got the war going on over there Israel and Gaza got the war going on continuing to go on in Ukraine there's other wars going on elsewhere in the world we don't normally hear about those but they're going on as well And it just seems, if you follow the headlines, you follow the stories, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. And we wonder, the Lord, the scripture says, you're a God of justice, do something. And frankly, we don't know exactly what we want him to do, we just want him to do something. You know what something, one something the Lord tells us to do? Is to pray. Do you pray as you're reading up about events in the world? Do you pray for God's justice, for his kingdom to come about? Because we're supposed to. Go with me for just a moment over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to take a quick look Verses 1 to 8, Luke 18. It's called the parable of the persistent widow. And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart or give up. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me what? Against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, by the way, God is not the unjust judge. The point of the story is that if even a rotten judge will finally do what the rotten judge is supposed to do all along, certainly God, the judge of all the earth, is going to do right. Let's keep reading. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus, will he find faith on earth? Now, the point of that last statement is that, as Jesus says, justice is going to come, but it's going to come according to God's timetable, not ours. And we have to recognize that. How often have you repeatedly prayed for something, wondering why you're not getting what you're asking God to do, and then when he comes through, you suddenly realize, oh, that's why it happened that way. And he worked the situation out a whole lot better than we could ever imagine, we could ever think, because that's how he does things. He works things according to his timetable 
not ours, including justice. You know, uh, when I was a kid, both my parents had to work, and so I had to stay with babysitters until I was about 12, 13 years old. And we were very fortunate when we came to Bakersfield when I was seven. There was a family lived two doors down that we became very close to, and Bill and Carol, the parents of this family, they had a son, same age as me, Bill, as well. They watched me, all right, until I was old enough to be home by myself. But sometimes you get kind of just sick and tired of hanging out with the babysitter family. So about five o'clock or so, I knew my mom and dad would be starting to come home, and it would be getting dark like it is right now. So I'd take my stuff, like my little bucket that had my school stuff and lunchbox and all that, and I would kind of go and stand on the edge of their property. Because when I stood there, I could look, and our street, Lupin, it, dead, it was the dead-end street for a street cross street called Beth. And I could watch people turning down Beth coming home from work. And I'd watch a car come down, and I'd think, whoa, maybe that's mom, maybe that's dad coming home from work. And it would turn off to another street. And I'd watch another car come down, and it would turn off to another street. But I kept watching, because I knew sooner or later, there would be a car that would come all the way down to the end of Beth, make that left turn, and pull into my family home's driveway. Not according to my timetable, according to what my parents did. That's what we have to do. So we're told, going back to Isaiah 42, God will establish justice, it's gonna happen. But it's interesting, how is it gonna happen? And we get a clue In verse three, a bruised reed he will not break. A a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A bruised reed, reeds they have to this day that grow along the Jordan River as well as the Nile River. You take a reed and you bend it to where it's just barely holding together. All right? That's bruised. You take an oil lamp and you empty out most of the oil, but there's still a little bit left in the wick, not enough to cause the wick to stay lit, but there's the smoke coming up, all right? So the reed is barely hanging on, the wick is smoldering. The point is, is that God works, Jesus works by gentleness. What's barely there, he's not going to exterminate. Anybody ever seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson, his character's daughter gets grabbed by a bunch of bad guys, and in he comes. Lots of people die in that movie, but they're all bad guys, okay? That's a lot of times how we think things have to work out, all right? But that's not how God does it. Jesus does it through gentleness. That's the reason why he tells us in the Beatitudes, he says this, blessed are the meek, that's humble, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not going to necessarily be those who thrust themselves forward, who demand attention, who demand their rights. No, it's going to be ultimately the humble because that's the kind of people God works through because that's what a servant does. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You could also translate that justice. For they shall be satisfied. The point, guys, is this. God takes what we consider weak, lowly, and God takes that and turns it for his glory. And he does this all the time. 
It's interesting. When Jesus described himself to his disciples, here's what he said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I used to hate that verse. Because so often in my ministry over the years, I felt heavy laden. I felt I was doing so much because I was expected to do those things. And then the Lord comes along and says, I will give you rest. And I thought, but it's true. Because so often what I was doing was I thought I should be doing it rather than trusting the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, when it comes to God working through gentleness Two things you got to remember, guys. We need to remember about this. First of all, the Lord is drawn to our weakness and to our failure. That's why Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Imagine... The kids were up here singing like they were just a little while ago, and one of the little kids comes along, all right, gets too close to the edge and steps over the edge and hits the bottom, okay? Kid starts crying. Who's probably going to be the first ones there to help? It's probably going to be mom or dad or grandma and grandpa. Why? Because they're drawn to the pain that child is feeling, their child is feeling. That's the same way it is with God. We're hurting, we're struggling. We sometimes make the mistake of thinking God doesn't care. Guys, that's especially the time that God cares. Because he is drawn to the brokenhearted and to the crushed. Secondly, when it comes to gentleness and weakness, God's weakness is far greater than our strength will ever be. That is the miracle of Jesus' birth. Born in a stable, possibly a cave. Laid in an animal's feeding trough, because that's what a manger was. Born to a family that had virtually no money, peasants. Two teenage parents. They had nothing. But God took that nothing, and that's how the incarnation began. Because he didn't need to come in a palace. He didn't need to be born in someplace like that. He could come in gentleness and humbleness because that's whom Jesus the servant is. Almighty God, forever and always, but also a servant. He also exercises persistence. He's a gentle servant. He is also a persistent servant. That's why it says, the end of verse 4, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus never quit. He had a mission to accomplish. Luke 9, 51, Luke says there that he set his heart, his mind, his look for Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem no matter what because he was going to die. His mission was to glorify his father by providing our salvation. And when he prayed, the night before he went to the cross, John 17, 4, he said this to his father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And the next day, just before he died, 
John 19.30, he said one word in Greek, tetelestai. It is what? Finished. And you know, not only did he come as a servant, showing gentleness, showing persistence, but also there is an end result to his servant's ministry, and we haven't seen it yet. Look at the last line of verse 4. And the coastlands wait for his law. Now, what, where are the coastlands? The coastlands are basically the faraway lands a long distance away from Israel. Israel is located in the eastern Mediterranean. They didn't necessarily know the full extent of the world around them. So whatever they didn't know far beyond what they could necessarily see, a lot of times they called that the coastlands, including where we are right now. All right? The point is, those areas who don't necessarily right now, or back then I should say, knew next to nothing about God, one day those areas are going to crave, are going to want God's word, God's truth. They're going to wait, they're going to hope for that. Because when Jesus returns and his kingdom is fully established, and the hearts of people have been changed like they are changed in the new covenant that we all live under, when God's laws are now written upon our hearts and the Holy Spirit now resides within us and we are remade into new creations of Christ, people will crave God's revelation, God's truth, because they know that's the only thing that works. That's why Isaiah 2.3 says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days, we're living in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and the nation shall flow into it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The ministry of the servant is not finished until this happens. Okay, let's talk now briefly. What about us? How do we follow Jesus, our servant king? Wow. All right, it takes two steps. Both are absolutely necessary. The first step, we remember who we are in Christ. We remember and bring back to our minds everything that God has done for us in Christ. And the deal is, guys, that's easy to remember when we think of passages like this because all of those facts at the beginning, they were all true about Jesus if you're a child of God, they're true about you as well. If you're saved, bought, paid for by the blood of Christ, you know what? You are now a servant of God. You are now his child. You have been saved as his workmanship to do the works that he has set aside for you according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And you know what? We're not just servants. Jesus says we're also his friends. We have a relationship now with Jesus that will last and deepen throughout all of eternity. That's why in John 15, 15, he says this to his disciples and to us. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that you have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Because we are in Christ, we are upheld and supported by the Father. He's there even if everything else gives way. He's still there. We are also chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. We are also his delight in Jesus. He loves us because we loved Jesus, his son. 
We have also been regenerated, sealed, empowered, and filled by the Holy Spirit. That is our spiritual pedigree. Peter uses a little different language, but this is what he wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's who we are in Christ. And just as the servant, Jesus, has a ministry, we also serve because he showed us how to serve. And how do we serve? First, by gentleness. We don't serve well if we push for our own way, do we? So, Paul wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, among the last words he wrote to his protege, Timothy. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You know, a lot of times why we get so insistent and sometimes get into arguments trying to insist that this is the way people should respond and we get upset with them is a lot of times we're responding out of our own insecurity and our own fear. Amen? Amen. We're not really trusting that God can work in that situation, so we think we have to apply the hammer to do it. Maybe what we need to do realistically is to respond in gentleness, also in truth. I'm not saying dial down the truth, far from it. I'm saying we need to think carefully and pray about how we present the truth. Peter wrote later, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we should always be ready to defend the faith that is in us, but do so with gentleness and respect. So, we minister in gentleness, trusting the Lord. We also minister in persistence and faithfulness. We do not quit. What has happened so often, not just before COVID, but COVID did not help matters, is a lot of people quit. That's why, not just in our church, but so many churches, attendance has dropped, seriously, because people use all kinds of different excuses and all that, but bottom line, so often they quit. And also, it's getting darker out there. It's getting more of a challenge out there to live for the Lord because that's how things are going to be until Jesus comes back. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder, which means we need to cling to the Lord that much more. Paul wrote this in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You too, James 5, 8 and 9, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So we serve in gentleness. We hang in there because God gives the strength to us to do that. And third, there is the absolute certainty that his rule as the servant king will one day be fully established. He is coming back. 
And when he comes back, he will rule and reign over this world. And then he goes into the, we go into the new heavens and the new earth, and that will be even more glorious. Isaiah 11.9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Absolute certainty. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So, two questions as we wrap this up. First question, coming back to Jesus as the servant king. Do you personally know Jesus, the servant king? If you don't know him, if you're not in a relationship with him where he has taken away your sins and you've entered into new life with him, then everything that I've described for you, none of that is yours. It only comes to people who are in a relationship with Jesus. So do you know Jesus, the servant king? Secondly, for those of us who do know him, are you following closely Jesus, the servant king? Are you living your life in a way that pleases him? in gentleness, in persistence, looking forward to his return. There's room for improvement for all of us on that. But this is basically a wake-up call. First to know Jesus, and then to be following closely Jesus, the servant king. So we're gonna have a time of prayer as Rachel plays. You come forward to pray if you have anything you want us to pray for you about with our elders, with our prayer team. That's what we're here for. So you come as the Lord leads.